here it comes another episode of this life ain't for everybody podcast thank you all so much for being part of our listening audience over the last year continues to grow and it continues to humble us it's an honor to bring this podcast to you we hope you like the diversity and guests and we hope you love the diversity and topics and themes that we're trying to cover and just show what's going on in stories out there in everyday walks of life. And it doesn't matter if you're a nine to fiver, regular Joe, celebrity, surgeon, garbage truck driver, high school janitor, military personnel, singer, songwriter, actor. It doesn't matter. We all live different forms of life and we can all be brought together and share each other's stories and learn something new about each other and try to find a common denominator, some common ground, common thread to become friends or to keep a relationship going. And that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. And today, we are honored again to have Mr. Brian Moore, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force veteran. He still is currently active in the U.S. Navy as a flight instructor. He's a fighter pilot. This is part three, and part one and part two were awesome. We're very intrigued by his story. If you guys love part two, um, you're right there with us. His story of the school and what he was able to accomplish with the, the medal he received, the air medal, and uh, with the third oak leaf cluster. That story is amazing. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to Brian Moore part two on This Life Ain't For Everybody and learn that story. But here we are again. Brian, welcome back. We're getting into the second deployment. We kind of finished uh, the first deployment as as a fighter pilot with the Air Force. So you come back. You're in that. This is in Iraq. Yep. You leave Germany for Iraq, yep. and you're there for four months. This, uh, the second deployment is a little bit longer. I think we're there about, uh, um, I was there in total almost six. Almost six yeah. months. And what is, is it kind of the same? Are you still in the same area? Uh, we're still operating out of the same base. So um, obviously the, the country of Iraq is not super huge, you know. Um, so basically the one air base, you could cover the entire country from the one base. It's uh, cent- uh, centrally located, so you could hit up, uh, you know, all three of the major cities really, uh, relatively easy. And with our aerial refueling capability, uh, really allows us to touch. There's really nowhere we can't go. And you're, is, are, are you kind of in that same holding pattern as it was the first time where things are kind of slowing down and there's not as much activity, so you're just there for support if anything does happen on the ground? Yeah, that's, you know, that's honestly primarily why we're there. And at the time, you know, obviously um, uh, policies were changing, rules of engagement were changing, you know, um, on the second deployment was largely now we're, we're really moving to hand off uh, the country's defense to the, um, to the indigenous, to the Iraqis, you know, once they're getting their, you know, their, their uh, fragile government uh, stabilized, you know, obviously we're making a present a presence or keeping a presence as the, um, uh, you know, the professional, you know, military that we are, but, you know, more and more operations were then being led by the Iraqi troops and being planned and executed by them, obviously with, uh, us, uh, trainers and, um, uh, supervisors, if you will. Um, uh, you know, cause it's it, like everything else, it's an ongoing learning process. You know, you, you hand the keys to somebody, you know, you go out and execute a mission, they come back and, and always there's an after action report. So where everyone's saying, Hey, this is what you did. Hey, this is what you could do better. This is what we should work on, um, next time. And every situation is unique. You know, the, um, the, I can only imagine, you know, not being, um, you know, an, uh, a ground officer with the army or something like that. But I'm, I'm sure they could say like every, you know, the situations are unique and, you know, the, the culture is unique and the, those inherently present some of their own unique, some of their own challenges that you just, uh, you wouldn't even think about until you've experienced it. And are you, are you, 
bored as a fighter pilot when this type of mentality takes over as, hey, there's not a lot of action going on. Is I know it's your job and I know that you're prepared and you're focused on if something does go wrong. But is it hard to sit there knowing that, would you rather be there now or when things were escalating to the point they did three or four years before this time and been part of that as opposed to being there when things were kind of slowed down and there wasn't much as activity? Does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, you know, and I, that's part, unfortunately, it's part of combat. Like when you go there, you know, um, there's the old um, saying for combat, it's, you know, 90% of sheer boredom followed by 10% of sheer terror, you know, and you never know when things are going to, are going to, um, you know, spark up again. So obviously, yeah, you'll have some missions that we go out there, you get your tasking order and you look at it and you're like, yeah, okay, that's, this one's not going to be that much fun. But at the end, at the end of the day, you never know, you know, there could be something flare that flares up elsewhere and you're the only um, planes airborne. So now you automatically become the lead of that situation. So there was always that inherent ability, uh, inherent, um, uh, ability for something to kick off. But like anything else, man, you know, when you're, you, you get the missions that you're, or you see a mission, you get, see an order and you're like, yep, I've been doing this the last couple of days in a row. And this one's not going to be super fun. So you you sit idle per se. Yeah. Are you getting in the plane and the jets every day and you're, you're hovering or you're flying around and you're doing, or is the airspace secured over there? Like it was when you were down in, um, where were we the first time when you met Rachel, we were in Korea, we were in Korea. Yeah. So you said that you were able to go up and share airspace and mission mm-hmm. around South Korea. Is that happened here to where you, where you have secured airspace, you can go up and, and just kind of get some flight time under your belt? Well, I mean, as far as like a training area or something like that, we really don't. Uh, at the time I was there, I'm not sure how it's uh, set up these days. Um, but when at the time I was there, you know, it was all, um, you know, it was all active military airspace. You know, there was drones that were acting or uh, that were maneuvering and, and uh, conducting their missions. And typically they uh, break everything down into blocks. So you have blocks of airspace overhead. So drones would op- operate at one block. Tankers would operate in one block. Fighters would operate in one block. And helicopters and all that. To, and, and it's in uh, an attempt to try to deconflict um, deconflict all the aircraft. Now, once again, when people start moving around, you absolutely can. And, it, you know, it's... Uh, Obviously, there's uh, air control centers that are over there that are, are really responsible for the for the uh, keeping people or keeping aircraft away from each other. But at the end of the day, you know, there is the general fog of war, which means, hey, you know, multiple people operating in a very dynamic environment. Hopefully we have the procedures and protocols in place to prevent uh, running aircraft together. But, you know, there have been there are some close calls every now and then just because it is such a dynamic environment. So at the time we were there, you know, they had we had procedures in place. But at the end of the day, we were still uh, operating in, in, in an active combat zone. And when you say active combat zone, does this mean that the ground forces are still engaged every day? Is there is there firefights going on? Are there injuries to our soldiers coming back to the where the medics have to to get them ready? Are we lo- are there casualties at this time? Yeah. Still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, obviously the firefighting and, and, and things of that nature have probably um, have uh, diminished a little bit, but they're, they're still, it's still an active combat zone, i.e., you know, whether it's happening every day or every other day or every third day, it's still not an uncommon occurrence. So what is the mindset of a fighter pilot that accomplished what you had in the first deployment? Are you sitting on go? Are you eager to get to get a mission to where you actually go into the combat kind of you know, ideology again, or are you kind of like sustained a little bit? Are you accepting, are you 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? Are you more like, man, thank God this is coming to a resolve and we're getting this done. We came over here and we did our job and I'm glad to be a part of it, but I'm glad that it's almost over. You know, I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing that goes through is, you know, number one, yeah, you're seeing, you're seeing a definite uh, cycle or a kind of a drawdown. And, and obviously, you know, at this point we've been operating there, um, for almost 10 years. You know, so you, you want to see some resolution. You want to see some, a path forward. You know, you don't want to get into these endless things and, and, and you're trying to wonder, you know, what are we doing here? What's going on? You know, the nice thing is, um, I think the longer and the more you deploy and the more you've been there, the, the, the gift that it gives you is a little bit of clarity and, uh, and a little bit of calm, you know, which can be huge, you know, when you are running on adrenaline and everything's moving very, uh, very quickly. It, um, it's, it's a breeding ground for potential mistakes. When you have the calm and the calamity, you could, you could get into the battle rhythm a little bit. You could see what's going on. You could see, you could anticipate how things might escalate. And now that allows you to mentally prepare for what you're, what you're able to do. And at the end of the day, you know, you're there to support the ground forces, whether the, the Marines on the ground or the army, but the, whoever the ground troops were, whether it's U.S. or coalition forces, that was ultimately um, you're there as a support asset for that. You know, what is the what is the mindset of the the locals, the people that were that lived under the regime of Saddam? He's gone now. Is it? Did he have a lot of support from the locals? I know that he had his army, and I know that he had his backers. But as a whole, are people relieved that this is changing over the way it is at this time? You know, I, I honestly can't. Uh can't speak intelligently about that. You know, we weren't allowed to mingle with the, uh, the indigenous population. We weren't allowed to leave base. It was still a very dangerous place, um, uh, you know, for a Westerner to go out. So it wasn't, uh, um, I, I really had very, very little interaction, if any at all, with any, uh, any of the indigenous Iraqis around the uh, area that we're at, you know, um, I don't know how they felt. Did the um, ground forces have more contact with them? Cause they're in the villages, they're in the cities. Yeah, I'm sure they did, you know, and I'm sure those guys were the, the ones that were talking with folks and just like anything else, they know who they start to figure out who the troublemakers are. And they, you know, I'm sure like most things, vast majority of the guys and gals that are over there are just trying to make a living, take care of their family, you know, get through, get through the day, um, in a positive way. But you know, in, in this type of chaos breeds, um, you know, these guys trying to snatch power, trying to figure out where they, they stand in this new regime. And it, it was very secular, you know, uh, Saddam, obviously he had his backers. He had the people that, uh, were loyal to him that he rewarded, but there was a lot of other groups that, uh, you know, that weren't backing him, you know, and didn't, you know, didn't like the way he was doing things. You know, obviously the Kurds had their own way of doing things, the different, um, Divisions of the Muslim religion had had their ways of doing things. Various religious leaders that that were popping up all over the place, acting as just warlords, you know. And it, it was it was really a chaotic area of a, or a chaotic power grab. And what is what strengths did they have throughout the tenure of this war? What was there something that gave them the confidence that they could do this and and become victorious was there a i know that he was crazy obviously to think that it was just a mindset of being psycho that got him in the position that he was that he thought he could carry this out and get away with it when he, that he had to go up against the militaries of a place like the united states of america plus nato and everybody else that was joining forces yeah i once again i i don't know um you know there was a couple things that he was probably thinking like he had been at at, uh, at war with iran for the last 30 years so thinking that he had some battle hardened, um, combat troops, which, you know, 
rightly so he did. He also had the, one of the, the largest militaries in the world, you know, and at the time when we went in there, it's like, look, we're going up against an adversary that has been fighting actively for the last 30 years. They do have the third largest military in the world. Um, you know, I think we shocked a lot of the world with our ability to project power, um, so quickly halfway across the planet. And not only that, just, you know, our logistics is really what, uh, what was the key piece? You're moving man and material, um, literally halfway around the world in a very short period of time. And then not, not only that, the way that our forces are able to, um, uh, pass, uh, Intel disseminate information and, um, get it into the ground commanders and the aircraft and everything like that. The way that we share everything that we learned and the way that we, uh, communicate on a digital uh, scale. I think it really was a shock to that area. You know, they have never, you know, they've never been hit so hard, so accurately, um, and continued to get hit, you know, um, like every, every time they would withdraw or, or, or troops were here, we already knew what, where they were at. We were already posturing against them. So I think that the speed of which the, uh, of the war that we brought, uh, was probably really shocking. I don't think, I don't think, uh, Maybe he, feel, uh, maybe he really understood what he was up against, or maybe he thought, hey, we're too far away. It's going to cost him too much money to really do anything. More than likely, he probably thought it was going to be some, you know, NATO action, which up to that point has been largely, you know, uh, inept. So he was thinking probably, you know, this is just going to be a bunch of conferences and who, who knows? I don't know. I can't get into that guy's mind. I don't know what he was thinking, you know, but he had, uh, he had a stranglehold on that area. He had his power. He had his palaces. He had his sons and family members set up in positions of prominence. I mean, he had his kingdom and that's essentially what it was. You know, he had his kingdom. He was the dictator. He was the king and everything else that that country was moving to was to benefit him and his regime. And what about your mindset or the, when you're a U.S. soldier and you have this much pride in protecting our freedoms, do you, when you hear the critics, when you hear the media of why are we over there? We're, we hear the rumors. They, they would, they would quote rumors of weapons of mass destruction. There was no hard proof. There was no hard evidence. Are they really there? What was George Dubbs thinking of sending in these troops? And, and as a soldier, you're not in the position to ask or even to pass judgment like this is right or this is wrong. You are there to do a job and your commander in chief, who is the president of the United States, when he makes his mind up and, and lets his generals and everybody go and, and, and start the war, you know, to go over there and activate the military, you don't have a choice. You're going in there. It's, there's no time. But as a person, can you, can you talk on what goes through your mind personally as a member, as a fighter pilot? Are you like, hell yeah, this is, I'm, I back my president and I'm ready to go? You know, at the end of the day, the funny thing is, as an officer, you don't swear allegiance to the president. You swear allegiance to the Constitution. Okay. So you're going in there to follow the orders, uh, the constitutionally lawful orders of the officers placed above you all the way up to the president of the United States. But you are there. You swear allegiance to the Constitution, which is very different than a lot of the other forces. So the, uh, all the officers swear to the Constitution. So that's what you're going over to do. So these are lawfully appointed orders from the people above me, and I am there to execute these lawfully appointed orders. Yeah, uh, regardless of what my opinion is, um, you know, you're there to, A, do a job. And, you know, and, and a lot of guys, especially in the Air Force, you know, everybody um, has several degrees. We're all very educated people with, you know, multiple masters. Um, you know, most of us have, you know, engineering degrees or higher echelon, you know, collegiate degrees. And we, we not only do our, you know, our, 
or college experiences, but then we have professional military education that we do. And then we have to go on and get advanced degrees as well. So you, you have a force that's very educated, you know, and I think anybody that's out there, that's a, that's an educated person. The first thing you do, it's, it's very difficult to pass judgment or to make a decision unless you have all the available Intel, you know, and that's, that's what the, you know, the generals and, and, and the guys appointed above us, those are the guys that get all the Intel from all the different sources and stuff like that. And then they pass what little, um, what pertinent in information along to the guys able to do the job, you know? So the guy that's down in one in region a doesn't really know, need to know about the operations halfway across the country in region B, you know, cause that information, that free flow could possibly be compromised. And now you can potentially put people's lives in danger. So from that, you know, just knowing like with most things, you know, there's so many ways, there's so many, you know, and it, it doesn't matter on both sides of the media spectrum right now, everyone's trying to trigger some emotional, uh, argument, you know, and, and typically they're in the headlines. Like, look at this emotion here, look at this emotion here. And then when you actually read the article, you're like, oh, it really isn't that big of a deal. But, um, so largely I think, you know, as a soldier, you just try to keep your emotions out of it because they're, they're going to have a tendency uh, as much as you can, because they have, they do have a uh, tendency to cloud your judgment. So you know? when you speak on the emotions of a soldier, and you have experienced these two tours of duty, and then you come off of this second tour of duty, you're still active in the military. You are a fighter pilot instructor. Emotionally, you're married. Okay, you're married, you have kids. You're in a different stage in your life now. Emotionally, do you want to be back there at that base, taking these missions, these orders for these missions that you just spoke on with your allegiance to the Constitution and your higher-ups? Do you want to be over there again emotionally when you know you have more riding personally now? Well, you know, I mean, it, at the end of the day, you know, you sign up for that. So it's like, look, if this is the job that we need you to do, then you will go and dutifully do your job. That's your job. You know, this that's the one, uh, the great thing about, you know, our military is we are a group of volunteers. Nobody forced us to do what we're doing. So if you don't want to do it, then that's fine. You don't have to do it. So legally, or maybe legally is not the right word, but constitutionally, could you go over again in the position that you are fulfilling right now? They could uh, say we need more, more get, Captain Moore get over there right now. Or Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. It, I mean, there, there's always those opportunities. Like when these deployments come up and things of that nature, you know, right now I'm in, in the reserves. So obviously the active component would be the guys going in there. But yeah, it, they, they could. If something else kicked off, I mean... And they don't have sufficient active duty forces or they need to um, augment with the reserves, 100%. So you emotionally could activate again your physical being, yourself, the person I'm looking at across this four-foot table. You could just, at a snap of a finger, you could be like, take care, Rachel. I love you kids. I'll yeah. see you in five months. Yeah. That's what. That's the, that's the difference in the mindset of a soldier, I, I believe. Well, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, and I don't want to downplay, I mean, you know, you have, would, would it suck, you know, a little bit? Would you be like, oh man, you know, stuff's going really good now. I really like watching football on Sundays and, you know, and being home at, at kind of regular intervals, you know, you're always going to go through that. You know, you're always going to say, yep, you know, life is good right now. But at the end of the day, it's like, Hey, this is what we, what we signed up to do. We are still actively doing it. It's always in the back of the head in, in the back of our minds. But you know, if, if we didn't, if I didn't want that uh, potential to happen, then I would have left the military. You know, that's the only way to really guarantee that. And, and obviously I'm still in the reserve, um, component. So yeah, I'm, I, that is still definitely a possibility. 
So when you say you you could have left the military, it kind of did take a turn and take me through this part of the journey now in your in your your tenure with the military was second deployment. We're coming to an end of that mm-hmm. about five five and a half months as mm-hmm. part of the U.S. Air Force. Yeah. Now you come back to America and you switch branches. No, uh, so we had, uh, coming out from Germany, uh, the wife and I had an assignment uh, to the NATO training base. So there's certain assignments that, you know, the military or the Air Force wants you to do, you know, to kind of augment its forces and, and spread the good deals and the bad deals out to everybody. So one of the uh, the assignments that we accepted was um, going to be instructors at the NATO training base. So going back and being uh, flight instructors. My wife went to... Um, to a squadron that was doing primary flight instruction. And then I was doing instruction after, uh, the, the budding fighter pilots got their wings. Now we're teaching them how to uh, use an aircraft as a, as an instrument of war. And so you're a hundred percent tied into the, do you, how does that happen? Do you have to take another oath? The, 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 the transition part of it from, from Air Force to Navy? I'm still in the Air Force at this point. You're still in the Air yeah, Force, still at, Air this Force at this point. So, um, you know, your, your minimal commitment for uh, a pilot slot is 10 years after you get your wings. So it, it roughly equates out to about 11 or 12 years of, of commitment, depending on how quickly you get through training and, and timing and stuff like that when, when training slots are available. So, you know, by signing on the dotted line, you're, you're in for 12 years minimally. Because of the amount of money that the government spends training you and maintaining your currencies, obviously they they need to get a, uh, a return on their investment. So um, you know at this point I'd been in about eight years, a little over eight years. So we get this training assignment that uh, takes us a, a you know it's a three year um, deal where we go and now we and, it, and it's kind of like a toned back you know assignment. It's more of a nine to five. You're you know you're at the schoolhouse, so it, it's fairly. Um, you know, predictable as far as your schedule. And, and, you know, and I think the military does it quite a bit just to keep from burning dudes out, you know, guys and girls, you know, so we, we had done basically two almost, you know, two consecutive assignments in, you know, Korea was one Korea. There was no formal declaration. There was no end of the war. So it was, you know, the Korea conflict is literally the, the largest sea or the longest ceasefire in history. There was no cessation, uh, cessation of hostilities in that conflict. So technically Korea was still an active war zone. When we're over there, you, then you go from there to Iraq and it's kind of the same thing. You know, you're just like in, you know, so I think the Air Force and in, in their uh, wisdom were like, hey, you know, for the longevity, for the mental um, health of our of, of these of this particular couple, we're going to send them to a training assignment, send them together. They could kind of decompress for three years, teach uh, the budding uh, new guys coming up to be fighter pilots. And then we'll see, you know, what assignments we have available for them. So we did that assignment for about, um, about three and a half years. And, and at the end of the day, you know, don't, don't kid yourself. I did not, I was pretty disappointed when I got that assignment cause I wanted to stay in the F 16. I wanted to keep doing what I was doing. Um, but you know, over time I've, I've come to understand why that was happening. And, and, you know, and at the end of the day, after that three year assignment, it was, it ended up being a great assignment, you know, family wise, uh, I think mental health wise and, 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 you know, and just, uh, it was great got to fly all the time. I mean, flew a lot and instructed, you know, got to, you know, get in on the entry level of these new guys coming up and get to influence, um, you know, not only their flying skills, but also their attitudes, which is, which is a huge thing is that you can do is like, Hey, this is, these are the attitude traits that are going to make you successful. You know, and these are the things that, you, you know, you might want to try me, to get give me an of. example, you know, like there's, are, you know, do you see this when you're not in the plane or is this in the classroom when you see this? Or? 
all, all, over. all over the place. You know, you see guys that are um, you know, just like overly cocky or overly, you know, because uh, obviously, you know, they, they've been very successful, these kids. You know, you're not getting um, guys and gals that have not been successful up to this point. You know, you're looking at all these kids that are all advanced degrees, all did very well with their program and then had to take aptitude tests, which they, you know, rocked out. And then, um, you know, then a year competing against their peers, they've done very well. Hence why, you know, the, you, you've had them. So up to this point in their adult lives, they've done everything that they've been asked to do. They've not only, uh, they've not only done, but they've, they've crushed, you know, they've done it with flying colors. So at, at some point, you know, like the, the biggest thing is you're looking at these guys going, well, you know, your sphere of what you think is out there, you know, is a little obscured, you know, you're, there's, it's a big world out there. There's going to be a lot of challenges. So yes, you are, you're doing very well in this controlled environment. Do not take that cocky attitude, you know, or overly cocky attitude and, and get out into the real world because you're going to, you're going to possibly bite off more than you could chew, uh, more than you could chew at some point and, uh, potentially back yourself into, or paint yourself into a square corner. In those exact words that you just said to me, Mm-hmm. You say it just like that to an up and coming fighter pilot yeah. that when you say that they've achieved a lot up to this point, which, you know, that confidence is fine. Yeah. Have they been in theater yet? Have they been in a combat zone at this time? No, no. They, we're, these are the brand new guys. Brand new guys. Yeah, they have, uh, um, they haven't been in any combat. They haven't done anything. They, you know, they're just training. So just learning how to fly military airplanes. How many mistakes are made by an experienced fighter pilot? Is it zero no. when you're in combat or is it, is it impossible not to make mistakes with this much pressure on you and knowing this, the jet and the controls? You, it, there's always mistakes out there. I mean, it, it'd be the same thing as saying, Hey, um, you know, any person, can you get through a day without making one mistake? And now let's, let's, cage that with the fact that, okay, what constitutes a big mistake versus a little mistake? You know what I mean? Like we could sit there when flying planes. I'm like, Oh yeah, I come back. I'm like, yeah, there's like four things I screwed up, you know, today. Well, well, what were those four things? Well, you know, I, when they gave me a frequency change, I actually went to the wrong frequency. Is that a big deal? No. You know? So what you really try to do is you try to minimize your major mistakes, those catastrophic mistakes, i.e., you know, Hey, what happened? Well, they called for fires and I forgot to arm my weapons. So I rolled down in there and nothing came off the jet. You know, that's a pretty big mistake, you know, all the way up to something super catastrophic where, Hey, I I got confused and I actually dropped on the wrong troops and get into a fratricide type, uh, um, scenario, you know, um, which, which has happened in combat. It's super, uh, unfortunate. And we have a lot of, um, controls to try to mitigate that. But at the end of the day, you know, it still continues to happen in that fog of war. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, so you always try to minimize, uh, those types. So those are major mistakes versus these tiny little mistakes. You know, what is, when you say the fog of war, the mistakes are going to happen, the pressure that's on these guys, what are the consequences to an experienced fighter jet pilot when one of these mistakes made is, does, does the, the Lieutenant or the general come down on them? Do they get dismissed? Do they get a few days off? to where they can regroup and get their thoughts back together? Well, something like that, you know, obviously is going to have an investigation. You know, they're going to, A, not, you know, the, the first thing they're going to do is remove the guy from flying status. The reason being is like, hey, you know, if this obviously with this hanging over their heads, they're not going to be able to fully concentrate 
on the mission they're going to do. So they're going to pull them off. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to try to figure out why it's not the immediately, you know, immediate blame, blame, blame the one person they want to, you know, everybody wants to do their due diligence and see, okay, what led up to this? And they're going to go all the way back. They're going to look at, you know, um, the schedules, you know, uh, of the, uh, of the individual. Okay. How much was he working or she working? How much were they flying? How much, what was their sleep like? So they're going to talk to their, their roommates and their suite mates and their squadron mates and like, Hey, were you seeing anything, you know, and they, you know, all the way to the point back where they'll probably be looking at their, you know, when they're logging on their computer to, to kind of get a, uh, a gauge on if these, this person was sleeping. So, Hey, maybe they were fatigued. Okay. What happened in the actual instance, you know, was there, you know, some jamming of the comms? So maybe some information that should have been passed, wasn't getting passed. Was it, you know, um, so there, there's just a myriad of different things that could potentially happen, you know, in any, in any catastrophic, uh, um, situation like that, they're going to come back and they're going to look at, Hey, um, why, what was going on? What caused this to happen? You know, and then, you know, and then they're going to make their, you know, assessment of, you know, Hey, this is the co- this is the root cause of why this happened. And these are some contributing causes to what, uh, what happened now, if it was like negligence, you know, Clearly, you know, then you're against uh, UCMJ, which is Uniform Code of Military Justice, and then you will be prosecuted accordingly. You know, if it's something that, you know, there is where you could reasonably um, assess that, hey, this based on the situation that we had, we're like, we, we assess that this, this person, this individual acted with due diligence, you know, and sometimes these things happen. You know, um, case in point, there was a, um, uh, an F-15E Strike Eagle crew that was airborne supporting combat operations. And, you know, they, um, uh, ended up dropping on friendly troops. And what was happening is the guy on the ground, you know, as they were getting coordinates, the bat, their battery ran out. So he swapped battery packs and he starts reading the coordinates. Well, what the guy didn't, uh, what the guy didn't, uh, uh, realize or, uh, assume, or he didn't realize when you, when you put a uh, battery pack in this particular piece of equipment, it defaults to its current coordinates. So he was reading his current coordinates of his position. So he's reading it to the, the, the guys overhead. And All it, the screen defaulted yeah, to where he was standing. To where he was not standing. Not to where the coordinates where they needed to drop. Yes. Oh, shit. So, and, you know, so you got the guys up top, you know, as he's reading the coordinates and they're, they're QCing, you know, they're quality controlling these, uh, these coordinates. They're like, hey, say again, these don't look right. This doesn't sound right. And it was, they pat like the, the, the guy on the ground passed the, the same coordinates about four times with the fighter pilot saying, no, man, this doesn't look right. And, you know, he used his authority, like I need the bomb. I'm on the ground, drop the bomb now. And so they did and end up, you know, taking the friendlies out. So, you know, obviously these guys, you know, there was a big investigation they removed, but based on everything um, that they saw, they're like, we, we, we exonerate these guys. They, they QC this guy, you know, and, and, and even then, even an airplane, you don't have, you know, global situational awareness, you know, you don't know exactly you, they've, they express their concerns, uh, through several instances and ultimately the guy on the ground and they basically came to the assumption is like, okay, something's must be going on that he's not telling us about, or he can't, uh, he can't tell us about. So he's, he's a guy that what we call, you know, uh, he's buying the bomb. So, Let's give him what he's buying, you know, after we voiced our concerns. So there's, there's situations like that, that happen, you know, from here and there, you know, obviously with, uh, equipment malfunctions or things of that nature. And that's where you come as the, 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 uh, the subject matter expert to try to say, Hey, this, you know, this doesn't sound right, or this doesn't look right. 
a lot of times you'll you'll find a mistake here or there between the two guys or you know um but but those are those are what you know what we consider the fog of war you know especially when you know imagine something crazy happens you know or let's say um uh, best way to put it out there i mean just to kind of take it down a little bit it's like right when you know, trying to keep track of your kids when they're going to Disneyland and the park just opens up and everybody just shotguns out there. You don't know what's going on. People are going here or there, everyone's screaming. I mean, there's, there's just so much sensory overload. That's, you know, in a, a very simplified form, kind of the fog of war. There's explosions. There's guys running here. You're not sure where everybody's at. And you're just trying to, trying to gain a hold on what is happening around you. Personally, do you recall or reflect on anything that you would have done different? in combat did you make a mistake that makes you go man that was that was close to being catastrophic catastrophic or just you know more serious than just the, you know the normal mistakes that you said could happen you know uh i think you always do because i mean there's an every every time you employ a weapon it, you know it's not like it's cowboys uh every time someone employs a weapon you know, bottom line, you come back, first thing they do is they pull the tapes out of your uh, jet that record all your HUD and your telemetry data. And it's not just you going over it. It's basically four um, field grade officers, sometimes more, are all going to look over every single thing you did. And they're going to scrutinize and they're going to, you know, ask questions. Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? And and you're basically in, a, in kind of a conversational thing. Hey, this is what I was seeing at this time. This is why I did this. This is why I executed in this way. And it's you're going to get debriefed on it. And, you know, and then they're going to send that up to, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the central, uh, 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 area that's going to look at that, uh, at that, they're going to look at, at your tapes and they're going to get some additional scrutiny on it. So every time you, you are employing in combat, that's the, the biggest thing you're, it's not like you're, there's not going to be a debrief and there's not going to be some oversight of what you're doing. So everybody's looking at things, you know, where there are a couple of times where they said, Hey, well, you were in this mode. Why didn't, did you think about using that mode? I'm like, oh, did, but I didn't, uh, it wasn't, I, I didn't think it would have any tangible benefit at the time. Maybe it would have, I don't know those little things. So I could honestly say, you know, you know, which kind of helps, I think anybody sleep at night is like, look, man, I, I, I could, I fully, um, know that I, I did everything to the best of my ability, you know, without any uh, prejudice or bias. Like I was, I was, uh, acting in accordance with my training, what I, you know, my systems knowledge and everything that, uh, all the knowledge I had at that point. So I really, you know, I will, I will stand before the man for everything, every bullet I shot out of the plane, every, every bomb that I dropped off that aircraft, I, I would 100% stand behind it. So these guys at your, your new, your, your new job, your new not mission. What is, excuse me for being ignorant on this. Now, after your second deployment, you're back in Germany and this is, mm -hmm. this is called a what? This is just a new, what is that called when they send you to this one right there? Is that a mission? No, it's a new assignment. So it's a new assignment. So I left Germany and went to Texas. So the assignment was in Texas. It was a NATO assignment. So, um, most, uh, pretty much I'd say the vast majority of the NATO fighter pilots are all trained in the United States. So when you're talking to these guys that haven't been there, done that, like you have, yeah. They need to be listening with all, they need to be coachable. They have to be what you were at Kent State. They have to have that mentality of being a sponge and not closing their ears when, when one of their superiors or their instructors are talking to them because what you're telling them is going to prevent what could become a catastrophic mistake 
if the attitude's not right, if the willingness, willingness and ability to learn's not right. So you're taking this, you're, you, you are at first, you're like, damn it, I want to be over in the F-16. I want to be doing my re- regular job. And then you're over there. But that's really, that's an important aspect of our military to have somebody like you that can get these guys down to, you know, get to their level and say, hey, I was here once. Yeah. You're going to see things now in your career. If this does happen, here's what you can expect. The arrogance, the cockiness has got to go because that is going to lead to something that's going to be potentially catastrophic to you or friendly, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And it, you know, like I said, it's, you know, there's, there's a difference between confidence and cockiness. Be confident, don't be cocky, you know, and it is, it, it does add credibility to, um, you know, to the guys going to do this uh, or, or from the students to the instructors. Like, well, this instructor's done this, this, and this recently. It's not like... Hey, this guy, yeah, he, you know, this guy was flying in Vietnam, not saying he didn't have any, you know, he doesn't have a good experience or good credits, but it's it, it, not the type of wars we're fighting. So to have recency of experience definitely increases the credibility of the instructors that are there. And what do you accredit yourself with as far as, are you good at this? You, you're enjoying it. You've come to the realization that, hey, this is good for the family. I'm fine with this position now. I'm good with this assignment now. Are you good at the job like you were when you were in the F-16 in battle, when you were receiving medals like this, are you as good at this job or is it kind of difficult? Are you built, you build up a wall and had a little bit of apprehension or a little bit of disgust of going like, uh, not disgust, probably wrong word, but like, I don't really want to be here. I want to be over there doing this. So are you still putting everything that you have as Brian Moore into this job and you're doing your best at it? Well, I think so. Uh, you know, cause if you don't, you, the uh, insincerity is going to come through. People are going to see that. People are going to know that if you're just kind of going through the motions, you know, and the students, they're smart. They're going to, they're going to figure that out. So it's like anything else, you know, uh, the way the military works, you're, you're changing assignments about every two years and 10 months. So you're not always going to get the assignment you want. You know, that's one, once again, that's part of the game and that's part of the deal. When you join the military, you're going to have to take some bad deals from time to time. And it, it, it it's how you handle that, you know, you can't fold your tents and say, well, it was me. This is not the way I wanted my life to go. Unfortunately, to a certain degree, you've kind of thrown the keys to somebody else for, yeah, <laughs> for a right. little bit so of just, time. So just throwing the keys to somebody else, does that speed up your willingness to, to leave active duty? Or are you, because you're not, at, you're reserves now. No, I am reserves when now. When you're in Texas, you're still active duty. Still active duty. Does this kind of assignment speed up the process or speed up your decision-making process to say, look, I'm at the end of it. I'm tossing the keys to this dude. I'm going into the reserves then if I'm not going to be over there in the 16. Well, you know, it's a, well, that's the one thing. Um, So, you know, fast forward to after we come up on another assignment, they basically said, Hey, your next assignment's back to the F-16. So we're like, Oh, okay. Um, And at the time, you know, when we um, had this, uh, you know, kind of stabilized assignment, that was when uh, the wife and I had our two kids. So we're like, well, we, you know, you can't do, kids in a, you know, in a combat, um, squadron. There's just, you know, there's, it's just too hard. You can't do it. So this was a training squadron. So a little bit more, um, uh, like I said, it's more stabilized, uh, schedule. So we banged two kids out in three years, you know, just like, Hey, if this, if we're going to have kids, this is the time we do it. So we did. And you know, everything kind of shifts at that point. Um, they were throwing us the keys to going back to the F-16, you know, once again, the deployments were, were fun. They were great when, when you're doing it, but you know, yeah, anybody that has kids can, can equate. They're like, dude, my priorities have shifted. You know, my, in the, the time I was in Germany, it was, was, it was a great time. But at the end of the day, I was, I was gone 21 of the 35 months I was stationed there. 
you know, I was gone. So I'm, you know, looking at that saying, Hey, we want to go back. You're going to go back to the F-16. I'm looking at the, de- the current deployment cycles. And I'm like, you know, looking at my two kids, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to be gone two of the next three years, you know? And that's, that was tough at that point, you know? Um, so, you know, it was a lot of come to Jesus type moments where my wife, her decision was made. She wanted to stay in the reserve. She was going to go to the reserves, you know, her, she had some injuries from the jet and, and things of that nature. So her body was kind of, the jet was breaking her body down a little bit. So she, she's like, Hey, I'm not going to go. Uh, I'm going to go to the reserves, but I will follow you wherever you want to go. If you want to stay active duty. And, and it, it, it was, it was a, it was a tough, uh, um, it wasn't a decision that you enter in lightly. So I had to, you know, I had to take some time and, um, and figure it out. And, and ultimately with, with family things that were happening with, uh, between our family, our extended family, um, opportunities that were presenting themselves, you know, the, the best thing for us was to go to the reserves. Do you see it in fighter pilots because of the, the jubilations, because of the missions, because of that mentality of, of what you do? I mean, there's the pressure on it, but the, the excitement, the adrenaline of that, there's probably no greater amount of adrenaline that you could possibly get in any job. I'm just saying that obviously there could be, Mm -hmm. but I just don't think that there is. Do you see a lot of fighter pilots doing the opposite of what you did to where they let the lifestyle take over to where the kids and the family aren't the important part of it? I know that that can happen in any walk of life and you see it, but with that job, with what it provides to that individual, being up there doing his thing in a 16 or 15 or 14, do you see it more? Do you see it happen opposite quite a bit? Oh, you know, absolutely. Cause that, that now becomes your total persona, you know, exactly. that's you're, where you're no, you're, yeah, you're no longer, you know, Brian Moore. Now you're, Hey, that's Brian, the fighter pilot. That's, you know, that's when you, when you can't separate those two. Um, and you do, you do see that. And, and there are lots of folks out there that have, problems, you know, and, 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 you know, sometimes, unfortunately the families pay the price for that, you know? Um, but I, you know, like I said, like pretty much with any, um, with any walk of life or with any career path, whatever you're doing, I mean, you see it a lot with people starting their own businesses and and things of that nature, you know, that becomes them. It's like, Hey, this is, you know, this is right now, you know, not only is it our income source, but this is, this is kind of who we are. This is, you know, this business fails. I kind of fail as a person because this is, you know, this business personifies me, if you will. But, uh, I, I, you could definitely see that, you know, that, that becomes, it, it becomes very difficult to separate the persona from the job. It's almost like being on stage in front of 45,000 people and then going home and just being Mick, you're Mick Jagger over here at the Rolling Stones. Then all of a sudden you're over in England and you're eating croissants and you're like, I'm just, you know, I'm just Mick, right? It's, it's a hard thing to do in a lot of different areas in life, in my opinion, of coming in the ones that get it and can do it. They enjoy a balance, but there's a lot of people that can't turn that red carpet VIP nightlife lifestyle off and it kind of affects them. And I could see how being a fighter pilot, you would just be like at home. I'm just, I'm just dad, which is awesome. It should be balanced. It should be great. But how hard is it not to want to be up in the sky drop it, you know, doing your thing in war and combat zone when you've experienced that exhilaration. I don't even know what the, the I just think it's the highest form of, of adrenaline that a, a human being could probably get. Yeah. I mean, in everybody, um, uh, there's no broad brush stroke, you know, everyone's got to come, uh, come to their realization as an individual on what, what, what price they're willing to pay and what price they're willing to inflict. 
You know what I mean? And uh, as far as on their family, on the on their loved ones and things of that nature. And, and, and like you said, there is a balance. And everybody's, some people, you know, everyone's situations are different. You know, some people have uber supportive wives, you know, and the spouses in, in any military uh, personnel, the spouses deserve, you know, as much, if not more of the credit, just because they're the ones, they're, they're not getting the glory. They're not getting the exhilaration. They're the ones that are taking care of the kids by themselves, two thousands of mi- you know, thousands of miles potentially away from any family members that they have, you know, and they're doing it as they're paying bills, as they're handling all this other stuff and trying to answer the questions of why mommy or daddy is gone. You know, the, the you know, the, the, the job that the, that the spouses, uh, play is, you know, probably one of the toughest in the military and they definitely do not get much credit for it. But they are equally, you know, the ones that do it well are equally committed to, as committed to, you know, the military and, uh, and the life as their spouse. And they have to be, you know, so they both get some, exu- you know, they both get some exhilaration of, and they, they both have a sense of duty and things of that nature. So you have, you know, I've seen it both. You've seen, you know, the families where it just clicks, that's, that's their gig, that's what they do, and they're awesome at it. And then you see uh, a lot of times where, you know, someone's plugged into the life and one of the spouses rapidly is saying, Hey, this is not what I signed up for, you know, cause there's a lot of external str- uh, pressures. Um, you know, your marriages are tough to, you know, in any sense of the imagination, but then you put these additional stressors on, Hey, you know, my spouse is going to be gone for six months. You know, I'm not hundred percent going to know what's going on, you know? And Oh, by the way, you know, I live, I'm from this area every, you know, let's say I live on the West coast, everything I know is about the West coast. And now you've put me in Bangor, Maine or something like that, or my not North Dakota. And you're just like, Holy, you know, there, there are a lot of additional stressors put upon by the family. So individually, you know, going back to what you're saying, it's, there's no broad brush answer. It's every family has to sit down and make the decisions for themselves based on what they, you know, what are their goals, what they want to do and, and really how much they can take as a family unit. So personally, I keep, you know, not broad brushing it, but personally, just Brian Moore, Mm -hmm. is it hard for you to be out of that jumpsuit and out of that limelight of the U.S. military and combat missions and just being in the reserves now? Was it hard for, is it hard for you to swallow that or are you settled and 100% accepting of, I have two kids. I have a lovely wife. I have extended family. I have footballs on footballs on Sunday, regular schedule of sports and SUVs and, and, and all of the stuff now, or do you find yourself battling ever of like, dang it, man, I need that back in my life. You know, I, I don't think it ever truly goes away. You know, me, for me personally, obviously the job I do now, I still have my nose plugged into the guys going out. Yeah. It's not necessarily me right now, but training and working with the guys that are going out to do that. So you know, kind of watching from the bleachers a little bit, but still have your head in the game. I guess, uh, you know, I did not quit it cold Turkey. So I could say, obviously there's still a little bit back there. That how envious of you are those guys? How, uh, je- how jealous are you of them when you have to drive back home and they are in the jet going over there to do missions? Are you jealous? Is there envy? How you say it never leaves you, but how extended is it? Like, does it mess with you, your psyche at all? You know, I think any, anything affects you. Uh, the, the greatest thing that you do is, you know, and I think how you cope with it um, is knowing that, hey, when those when you get done training, I'm like, you, you could literally, you know, and I'd always tell the guys, I'm like, I'm training you to be better than me. You know, because if you're not, I'm training you to take my job. 
because if you're better than me, you should take my job. And that means not only does our military become stronger, our country becomes stronger, everything is. Now, once again, with that being said, if you suck, I'm not going to give you my job. You know, so you try to impart everything that you have, all your experience, all your flight time, all your, um, you know, all, all of your experiences into this person. So at the end of the day, because ultimately, you know, the, these young kids that are coming up, these are the guys that are going to go out and be presented with these scenarios that maybe you I, I, that was I was never exposed to or a lot of these other uh, folks are not exposed to. But you've given them the building blocks to be able to make that decision. And there, there's a there's a sense of you know solemn pride in the facts like look I, I imparted everything I could into this into this individual to make them in some small way a little bit better, you know. And so then yeah, when they're flying off doing the work, you're you know doing doing God's work, you're just like, you know, yeah. Do you, do you want to be with them? Absolutely, yeah, a little bit. You know, I don't think that ever goes away. But at the same time, you're like you know the, I've imparted everything I can. I've given them everything I can. I did not hold back on any type of instruction any type of techniques or anything like that, you know? So that's where I think you could go, or that's where I take some, a little bit of solemn pride in that, knowing that I've, you know, that I've given them everything I can from me. So what are you doing on the new, the new assignment? What you're, you're, you're in Texas at this job. Is this the new assignment where you're back in the jet, but the next assignment comes up and you're actually going on missions now? No. So, I mean, it, it, it's just all a training assignment. Training so, assignment. Yeah. It, so it's a different jet, but you're still flying every day. And you're yeah. still in the, you're still in the air force. Yeah. So this is coming up on year 10 now. Uh, basically coming up on year 11. Year 11. Yeah. So take me through that part of the career of, is there a transition getting ready to take place? Well, uh, the transition was coming up on a new assignment. So that's where we, you know, a uh, new assignment going back. And, and now I've fulfilled my contract with the military. My contract was 10 years after I got my wing. So my contract has been fulfilled. So now it's basically, you know, Air Force offering a new contract, which is like, hey, here's your F-16 assignment. Now, if you take that, it incurs three years of three more years of commitment after you go through, after we, we re-spool you up in training and stuff like that. So, you know, so that here goes another three years. So now at, you know, almost year 12, this is going to take me basically to year 15. And then, uh, you know, and, and you just keep adding uh, on contracts from there. So that's where the transition was coming in. You know, hey, we're up on this contract. Now, if we are going to change our status, i.e. from active to, uh, um, to reserves, or even if we wanted to go to the air guard, um, or doing what we did, you know, uh, which was something we, we did plan D where Rachel stayed in the reserves for the air force. And then I, um, contacted a unit that was, uh, you know, out in, uh, at Naval air station Fallon and sent them a resume. And I ended up cross commissioning over to the Navy. Explain cross commissioning. So basically I went over at this time, I was a major in the air force. Um, so, um, basically a cross commission is, but, you know, talk to them, based on the experience, the jobs that they had uh, available. Uh, they were looking at my experience and, and my ability to immediately help the unit. Um, so essentially, you know, you're already a, a acknowledged uh, Department of Defense asset. So now what you have to do is just kind of So they up. offer you a better job? Well, they just offer a job. You so know, you're, were, it's almost like free agency in sports. A little bit. Now you could have went anywhere to be a pilot out of any branch. Mm -hmm. Now the air, the, the Navy's getting ready, ready to offer you a job, knowing what your qualifications and what your portfolio is. Yeah. So that job comes in and it's better than the extension of three years commitment on top of what your next mission is with the air force being back in the 16. Yeah. I mean, well, the job it's, it, it's different. 
it's not the same, you know, I mean, the going back to going back to the staying active duty, going back to the F-16, that was where we're talking about, Hey man, I'm going to be gone two of the next three years as I'm looking at my kids versus this one's a little bit more stable. Um, I'm still training guys this time in an upgraded, um, aircraft. Um, and you know, quite frankly, geographically with us living in Reno, it worked out. Um, some of the other reserve units I was talking to and had potential of getting hired by were outside of the state that, that we were going to settle in and live, live in. So that means I would be commuting. I would be traveling out of state to a part-time job and then having to travel out of state for a full-time job. So, you know, once again, you leave the military or we transition because it was, we wanted a little bit more time at home. Now, if I jump in these two jobs where it takes me away just as much, uh, as I would have been away if I was active duty, it didn't make a lot of sense. So, so what is the new job? So what, is, what does the Navy offer you? So the Navy offers, uh, it basically it was an F5 aggressor. So F5 is the, you know, it was a front combat jet, uh, in the seventies. I think it was retired from active, uh, air force, um, uh, frontline in about the eighties. A lot of countries still use the aircraft in their front, uh, um, within their uh, combat air forces. Uh, the United States is not, but anyway, it's, it's still a very good training, uh, aircraft. So it's, uh, it's, uh, basically for it's an adversary position. So essentially what, what we do now is we are the guys that uh, simulate threat nation tactics, Chinese, Russian, uh, any threat nation uh, tactics that are out there. So we go up and we fight the blue forces, i.e. the, you know, the carrier action group or the carrier strike groups that are coming out there. So we train uh, these kids on, on basically the, uh, uh, what they're going to potentially experience if uh, day one of a war kicked off with one of the, the major threat countries. And when you take this job, has there ever been one ounce of regret since you said yes to the Navy instead of the active duty duty with the Air Force? You know, um, honestly, I've never haven't looked back yet, you know, because I don't uh, I don't believe in 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 regret or, you know, getting too introspective when you're still in the trenches, if you will. And right now I'm still doing everything. Yeah, maybe, you know, when I retire from working at all or, um, then I'll go back and look at everything and say, okay, you know, cause then you can have uh, the totalitarian of not only experience, but also trends and everything like that. And you could go back and look at things and say, Hey, did I make the right decisions? You know, I could say emphatically say at the time, these were the, these were the best decisions based on the information that we had at the time. Um, why don't you retire from the air, from the Navy, from the United States military? And just be a dad and a commercial pilot. I mean, one of the things is, uh, A, I still uh, thought I had things to give, you know, um, experiences and instructional techniques to pass on. So I still thought I was relative, you know, relevant to um, the combat air, the combat forces, number one. Uh, number two, you know, that this job was, each job I take was taking me closer to retirement. You know, and you do 20 years in the military, you get a, um, a, a pension through the military. So I'm like, Hey, I'm doing a job. I'm doing a job I want to do. Um, I'm doing a job I think that I'm good at and I'm, I'm still relevant with experiences to pass on to the new guys. Uh, Oh, all of this encompass also takes me closer to a retirement, which is going to be beneficial for not only my spouse, but myself and my, you know, my family. So it's, it's kind of a win-win at this point. So this, it has nothing to do with not being able to hang it up as far as the adrenaline of being in that jet. And is that still play a role in it? Oh, I mean, obviously you love doing what you do, 
you know, um, and then at the end of the day is if, if it comes down to it and they said, Hey, you know, Brian, we no longer want you to fly. We're going to, we're going to give you a desk. Well, then now you kind of make that assessment is like, well, is this new job willing for me to stay in and be away from my family and do all that other stuff? If the answer is no, then you say, well, you know what, that retirement's not worth it. Not you know, that the, the cost of this retirement's not worth it. So, um, how hard was that decision, Brian, being who you are, competitive athlete, um, combat fighter pilot, how hard was it to take that F five job and just be in the reserves? Was it eating at you at the time when you're first making that transition over and getting into that F five? Are you like, gosh, dang it. I could have been on another mission right now on an F 16 or are you 100% sold and 100% satisfied with where you're at? You know, I, I'm, I was 100% satisfied where I'm at. I know that, you know, I still miss, you know, the F-16, still miss, you know, talking to guys that are still out there doing the missions. You know, I still have good friends that are out there doing, you know, doing God's work, as we always say. Um, that was, you know, I, I look at it emphatically. It's just like, look, you know, based on where I was at in life, this this was the better choice for me, you know. And, yeah, is there is there a little bit of... Hey, what would, what would happen right now? Is it a little bit of look, give back? I would say even regret. I, I don't know if regret would be too strong of a word. It would be like, well, I wonder where I would have been if I went, you know, anytime you come up on a major crossroads and you choose, you know, choice A, you're like, well, I wonder how would, how it would have been if I went on choice B, you know, what would I be doing right now? You know, and that's kind of the thing that you kind of look at, but I can emphatically say that I'm, I'm super happy doing what I'm doing right now. I'm still able to share experiences, still able to train and still able to give, you know, the, the combat forces, you know, effective training, not only in the air, but also in the ground working. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, work with, uh, um, some of the ground, uh, forces, some of the seals that are coming in there, they go through Fallon and they're doing, you know, they're perfecting their, um, uh, air to ground, um, techniques and, uh, training and getting spun up on that. And these guys are going out and doing, you know, you don't know about the stuff they're doing. We don't even know about the stuff they're doing, but these are, you know, these are some of the most skilled tacticians on the planet and some of the most feared, you know, guys and girls in the world. And you in some way are helping their training. Say that again, them. these tacticians and they're some of the most feared. Yeah. Say it, tell me what that means. Well, I mean, Navy SEALs, you know, if you are a, if you are a threat nation, and you hear that there's a boat parked 12 miles off your coast full of Navy SEALs, you're probably going to be a little apprehensive about that. You know, that just made chills go through my body. I mean, because these, I mean, they, I mean, their, their reputation or any, any, and not just the Navy SEALs, you know, they've been getting a lot of reputation or yeah, a lot of stuff lately, but you know, army special operations, air force, you know, P, uh, pararescue and special operations, all the combined special operations or soft forces, special operations forces, they, you know, uh, the, the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, has some of the most skilled um, uh, special operators in the world, and they are some of the most. But well you used the words well you said the most. I've never heard it put that they're the most feared. Not, I'm not saying that you're, you're saying they're the scariest people on earth, but I've never heard it put. And I've been around SEALs or guys that were Delta or guys that yeah. were Ranger. You know. I've never heard it put some of the most feared individuals in the world. I've never heard that said. I would say that if you were, you know, they're, they're that much of a badass. I think so. Wow. That's awesome. You know, I'm sure they, you know, they're always, like they said, they pride themselves on being the, uh, the silent professionals. So, um, but obviously if you're coming in there and you, you know, these guys have, you know, almost limitless funds, limitless training and limitless assets allocated to them. I mean, that's, 
you know, that, that is a, a very uh, scary position to be in as an, as an adversary force. Wow. So do you ever wish that you would have went that route in your military career or does, was your love for flying outweighing everything? You know, um, honestly, yeah, that, you know, my, I, I got, I got bit by the uh, airplane drug a long time ago. So that was, uh, that was my drug. Uh, once again, you, you look back and who knows if you would have been, you know, I would have been able to make, I, who knows? But with the respect that you have and admiration that you have for special forces, and I know you have the same for all the military, mm-hmm. but I just saw this little glimpse in, or this little glimmer in your eye. Do you ever think like, man, I wish I was, I wish I was down there in the water with the seals? Dude, there's always a little bit of that, you know, or, you know, cause being, see, what, what you respect is you respect um, people that are solely dedicated to the, um, to basically the perfection of their craft, which is what the special operations guys do, you know, no different than, you know, you look at the, the helo guys that fly those guys in there. These guys are the best of what they do. Um, so I think singularly you just, it's easy to admire uncompromising people and the uncompromised, uh, their non-compromise uh, is the fact that they are going to be the best at their chosen field. And there's, there's an inalienable respect for that, the, to see somebody that is willing to do whatever it takes to be the best at that particular skill set. It's awesome. And what it takes to get, acquire that skill set is an ungodly amount of, of training and, and testing and only the, the survival. I mean, when you hear survival, the fittest, it rings true a lot in that in seals training or Delta and stuff like that. And then mental fortitude, you know, know, these guys are coming in there they're like, you know, I've heard that renowned, you know, uh, it renowns for a lot of those guys, you know, not just the seals, but a lot of the special operators are like, dude, I was willing to die in training to get, to make this happen. You know, and you look at that and you're like, yeah, that's, that's some pretty solid dedication, you know, and, and you could even see that with, you know, the fighter pilots and stuff like that. Cause that's kind of the same thing. You're like, you know, you're going up in these, these aircraft that potentially could kill you. And so I think it's, it's just a, it's just a, a brotherhood and sisterhood of, of mutual respect for like, Hey, it's always great to work with people that are willing, um, like I said, to, that are, that are uncompromising and completely dedicated to the, um, to the perfection of their craft. I love, I love hearing that it, it's just like you're, you're, you're annoying or you're promoting this validation to these people that, that are doing something based on their passion and their dedication to this craft. And you did the same thing as a fighter pilot, but the respect, it seems like for you, that you have for these ground forces. And you said it in our last podcast and the, you know, the, of what they're really, you know, they're the ones that are really in the trenches and you're just kind of hovering above them. I think you put it, but it just seems to me like that none of them work without the other. Sure. But is it safe to say that our special forces could, they do a lot of stuff without the other ones? Uh, I, I, no, I it's disagree. I disagree with that, you okay. know, cause it, you put number one, I mean, yeah, they're everybody, you know, everybody working together as a force multiplier is what you, you'd say, force you know, it's like, cause you know, let's say you, you got some army Rangers or let's say some Delta force guys that need to go from here to some village in Africa. Well, they don't do that without an air force transport that picks them up, puts them over to the, uh, the zone. So back that up even more. Well, they're not doing it unless that fuels guys putting the proper fuel in there. You know, they don't do it unless, you know, the, uh, the ammo guys are, you know, giving them what they need as far as weapons and everything like that and training, you know, they get over there more than likely, not only the transport that ta- that's taking them from point A to point B, but it's not like the plane can, can get there unless it probably hits a tanker once or twice and gets refueled. So it could fly from, you know, 
San Diego to Africa nonstop. You know, so now you have tankers that have to be really skilled at what their training is, and they they will rendezvous with the plane being at a point over the Atlantic Ocean, you know, at at a specific time to meet this transport to, you know, to top off gas. You know, none of that works unless there's, you know, guys on the ground making diplomatic uh, connections, allowing those planes to fly in the airspaces. You know, so everything that I, I, I don't think there's there's no no particular forces in an island because everybody has to rely uh, on everybody to, to make the job happen, you know, especially in a global operation. Very well said. In layman's terms, you're very give me your background. Now, you 20 minutes ago, you talked about degrees and education and higher degrees. Give me your personal education after you left high school. Uh, so high school have a degree in, uh, aerospace, uh, science, minor in aerodynamics, um, have a couple of, you know, uh, professional military educational, uh, courses that I I went through. And then I have a, uh, an MBA with an emphasis in finance. What's an MBA? Uh, master's of business administration. I just wanted to hear you say, yeah, you have a master's degree Mm -hmm. in finance. Yeah. So what does that do for you? Are you, are you is that do you get to sit with Wade and, and be an accountant with that degree or what how is Brian Moore going to utilize this master's or did you just choose that one to just challenge yourself again I think that uh, a little bit and you know I haven't necessarily uh, I, I think that, you know that type of degree I, I'm big on you know um, diversify diversification of education I started a master's degree in aerospace engineering got about a, a quarter of the way through it and I was like you know what it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, look, I'm going to know a lot about very little and it's very specialized. So I wanted to, um, you know, diversify and it, it might go back to the point where, you know, as we talked in the first podcast, how, you know, being a, uh, a budding airline guy, when the airline said, Hey, we're not hiring you. It's really difficult to go out and get another job when you have an aerospace degree, you know, cause you're so specialized. So I think that stuck with me a little bit. And then, so I ended up switching from an aerospace engineering master's degree to, um, just a broader brush business type master of business administration. And then, you know, and I, I like finance. I don't, I don't necessarily mind numbers, you know, I'm, I'm not to the uh, Wade level of loving numbers, but, uh, you know, I do, I do think that hits every facet uh, of your, your, of your life. If it, even if it comes down to just balancing, you know, your home checkbook and, you know, planning for your retirement future. So, um, honestly, as far as that education, have I used, have I used it to its full potential? I'm like, you know, the only thing I say is not yet. Meaning that someday you could be a CFO of a fortune 500 company with this kind of masters, something, you know, something. And, and, and experience and, you know, like that. So it, it, it CEO I, with your military background, your leadership background, your, your instructing background, all of that goes into this, this portfolio that when you go and lay it down, like, somebody that is going to be like, yes, we, this guy could run our organization or be a part of our higher infrastructure, you know, one of the higher positions, which I had no idea that you had an MBA in finance with the education and the military education part of it. Is there a lot of stuff that you know in military and combat and the daily routine and and organization of our United States military that we haven't touched on? Or do you mainly focus on that aero, that airplane and that F-16 and that's where a lot of your intelligence is? Well, you know, like anything else, like you, you know, you're, you're giving uh, a small little piece of the entire pie, if you will. And then and you spend your time, hey, this is, this is my, as we call it, um, 
uh, AOR. This is my area of responsibility right now. So right now they're paying me to be the best F-16 pilot I can be. So that's where I'm going to spend my focus. Yeah, you pick up on stuff here and there. And through your experiences, you you know, everyone's got their gripes and, you know, judgment on how they can do things a little bit better without knowing the total picture. You know, that, and that was that facet. You know, when I was an instructor, it's you're still flying airplanes, but you're know, like, now I'm being paid to pass my knowledge and make these kids coming up the best pilots that they could potentially be. You know, so that was your, my AOR at that point. Now it's, you know, providing um, the best adversary support for the fleet units that I can do, you know, and so that's where it is. And, and each one has distinct um, facets that make, that make you, um, effective at that, you know? Um, so every, every job or every little piece of the pie or AOR that you've been given, you're going to have little subsets and sub skill sets within that, that allow you, that are going to be different from each uh, job that are going to allow you to really be effective and, and not only effective, but efficient and being able to communicate and relate that to, to the guys that, that are coming up. So with that, with that statement you just made, having these skill sets, could you personally fly any fighter jet that's ever, that's a part of our military in today's military? Well, not without training. Not without training. Yeah. But would the training be repetitive if you, okay, first of all, let's just start in layman's terms. Give me the difference. What are the, what are the major fighter jets that, that are in our branches of military? The 14, the 15, the 16, or just educate me a little bit on this. Well, um, so going for, air, you know, the frontline air force fighters right now, um, you have the, F-16, the F-15C, the F-15E, the A-10, the F-35, and the F-22. Those are the Air Forces. The main fighters now, the fifth-generation fighters that, that we're all modernizing, modernizing our fleet to are the F-22 and the F-35. So those are going to start replacing some of our legacy fighters. And the legacy fighters would be the F-15, F-16, A-10-type um, aircraft. Uh, the Navy flies essentially the F-18 the E and the F model of the F-18. And then they do have a G model, which is a growler, which is more biased to an electronic warfare type aircraft. So those are the frontline fighters. And then obviously the, the Navy did buy several iterations of, uh, of the uh, F-35. So, you know, the, the one thing that's um, different is every, you know, especially now with our legacy aircraft is each aircraft has, is very good at its specific piece of the pie, going back to what we're saying with that. Like the A-10 you know, phenomenal aircraft for what it does, which is close air support and ground strike. You know, it's got, it's got its big, uh, gun that can, uh, take out tanks, which no other aircraft can, can take out a, a, a tank with its, with just its internal gun, uh, has a huge amount of, uh, air to ground ordnance can take damage. I mean, it is phenomenal what it does. The F-15 is kind of, you know, the air superiority fighter, which has a big radar, lots of missiles. It's, it specializes in air to air, uh, combat. Then you have your multi-role fighters like the F-15E. Okay, well, hold on. On the first one you named is this one right yeah. here, which is the A-10. Yep. Could you fly this without with with, with training, no problem? Yeah. How, how long does training for you right now with your skill set take to fly this? Because this looks like a bigger jet. Uh, it's, I mean, they're, yeah, the sizes are a little bit different, but at the end of the day, you know, the most things that you're looking for is the systems. I mean, obviously with uh, somebody that's already been fighter rated, they're going to go through an abbreviated type syllabus, depending on your recency and currency. Um, but at the end of the day, planes are still planes. Now that's going to, that one's going to fly a little bit different than like an F-16 or an F-15 because it's, you know, it's a straight wing. It's a little bit, uh, it has a fatter wing. So it's, uh, you know, the, the areas where that wing is going to stall is going to be different. It's thrust to weight ratio is going to be different. So, you know, 
flying planes for a long time, you understand these things and you, you know, um, when you can, where there could be potential pitfalls in its, uh, performance envelope. But at the end of the day, nothing, nothing can replace the fact that, Hey, I still need to fly this airplane. I still need to, you know, know how, where the systems are. And, you know, I, I still need to know all that stuff, which is not something you could just run up to and but is it safe to say that if I asked you with every jet you just named up to the, was it the F-32? F-35. F-35. And that's like the baddest of the bad right now? Just it's, it's the new hotness. It's the new hotness. Yeah. Would that still be an abbreviated syllabus for Brian Moore to fly that? Or is that just a whole new bag of tricks, that one? Well, you know, like I said, going back to what it is, the planes themselves aren't. Just the systems. Yeah. The planes themselves aren't necessarily uh, super different to fly. You know, a fighter type aircraft is generally a fighter type aircraft. I mean, obviously there's going to be some, um, there's going to be some nuances with each plane, but the amount of systems, the amount of, uh, sensors that they're putting on the aircraft now, just the, to, just to process that information that the aircraft is giving you, that's going to take time. That's going to take, you know, a lot of training and that's going to take a lot of, um, to be able to not just to, to be able to do it in a stressful type situation, you know? So, the systems, it's safe to say then that you're going to be able to go in with your background, your education, your intelligence and your military intelligence and your fighter pilot intelligence. You're going to have an easier time, obviously, than the guy off the streets learning this, learning this syllabus to fly these new jets. Are any of them intimidating to you when you look at that jet right there? Does anything make, stand out of making you go, nah, I wouldn't even want a piece of that? Because now when I see this, this is the F-35, that looks like a bad son of a bitch. It's but, a cool plane. Is it intimidating at all? No. Not one bit? No. Have you flown in one? I've uh, uh, flown in the simulator one. Have you? Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll ever physically fly in one? Oh, man, that would be... Uh, I, I don't foresee in my current career path, I don't foresee that being an option, but at the end of the day, y- you never know. Do you want to? Once again, get, if, given the, if given the opportunity, that would be something, okay, once again, it's cost versus reward. Okay, what is it going to take? You don't know. So... Man, I, I don't know. Uh, would I want to fly something like that? You know, obviously that's, like I said, that's the new hotness. Um, you know, being able to, if somebody's willing to throw you the keys to the new hotness, obviously you have to sit there and, and uh, definitely consider that and, and, and seeing where you sit on it. So back uh, to what you were saying about the, the jets and the differences in them. What does this jet have that the fighter pilot, they're the fighter jets, the combat jets that were relative, you know, from 2005 to right now? What does this F-35 have? I'm not trying to cut you off from your expl- explanation of each jet, but it seems to me like you you made the statement that, pe- that everybody's making the transition for this one. And what was the, the, the F-22? F-20, the 22. Mm-hmm. What do they have that the 16 and the 15 and the 15E didn't have? Well, you know, the biggest thing that sets out there, the fifth generation of fighters that we have. So the fifth generation, obviously, you know, uh, the thing that you look at is the stealth technology. So the low observable um, type technology, which is, you know, they don't reflect as much radar energy as some of the, our legacy aircraft um, is the big thing. The second thing is sensory or sensor integration. So with the legacy fighters, the F-15, 16s, you know, they didn't have much of sensors you know, when they first came out, these planes were all designed and built and, and fielded in the seventies. So now with all the new, you know, what, what you're flying, flying, or what you're finding with aircraft is, you know, the sensors and the sensory capability that we have on these planes is now almost equally as important as a weapon systems that it can carry. So with the 15s and, and the legacy fighters that we have, a lot of those external or a lot of the sensors that they, that we use in combat every day are actually on external pods. They're not uh, in, uh, integrated within the aircraft. 
So you have these, you know, strap on pods that you're putting all over the aircraft, which is a going to increase drag. Um, and it, it has some, um, you know, some detrimental effects as far as aerodynamically to the aircraft. Whereas when you build an aircraft that has this, um, philosophy into it, you know, like the F-22 and the F-35 to have all these integrated sensors that have, uh, that were the software readily, readily talks, uh, to each other, the speed at which you're able to process, like to absorb process and then, um, act upon information is light years ahead of what we have now. In layman's terms, explain the process of that tanker over the Atlantic Ocean filling up a plane. I talked to Rachel about this, and she passed the passed the the, the baton to you because she said you had a lot more experience in, in filling up with tankers. Mm-hmm. Is it all digital? Is it all done with a push of a button? To explain the process to me, and it, it, how close do you have to be to the tanker? What 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 is the fighter pilot? responsible for during this process what is the tanker pilot responsible for how does the entire deal work to get topped off so essentially what we have the there's two big philosophies going back and i'll talk about the air force philosophy because it's the one i have most experience about but they have there's two different types of uh of aerial refueling uh the first one is using a boom it's a boom or a basket so a boom is basically a rigid structure that comes that extends out from the plane and actually will plug into your fuel receptacle that's what the air force uses the Navy uses a basket, which is essentially you have a fueling pod and it reels out this hose that has a little, looks like almost like a, uh, was it a shuttlecock from a, you know, badminton has one of those. And basically now what the, the Navy guys are required to do is they extend a probe out of their jet and they plug into this little shuttlecock, if you will. And both methods work. Um, there's just two different philosophies. So speaking with the air force philosophy, um, so essentially what happens is, yeah, when you go up on a tanker, Um, you roll up and, you know, they extend their boom into what we call the pre-contact position. So it's basically the booms out, letting you know that, Hey, everything's functional and, um, they're in a position to start giving gas, if you will. So now you move into, um, now you move into the the contact position. So essentially with the F-16, because the fuel receptacle is actually located six feet behind you. So you drive straight at the end of the boom. And as you're going up to the boom, there's a kid, uh, or an air, there's an airman, uh, a boom operator, if you will, that's sitting inside the uh, the tanker aircraft, and they actually, at the last minute, right before it hits the canopy, they move it out of the way. You continue to move forward, and then they plug it in. Now, the booms can move a little bit aerodynamically. They have two little wings on it, so they can move up, down, you know, um, vertically, horizontally, um, but they have a very limited field of view or limited uh, range of travel, but they can move a little bit. So at this point, you know, the tanker pilot has to fly the aircraft sta- uh, stabilized, the boom operator has to physically move the boom into um, into the uh, the receptacle of the fighter jet, and then the fighter pilot has to maintain um, a stable distance or a, a stable position in relation to the tanker. So largely, you're maneuvering about ten to fifteen feet, you know, from uh, from the tanker aircraft. At what speed? Uh, it depends on the altitude. Um, but okay, so how high have you seen it done? Uh, the highest I think I ever tanked was just, just shy of 30,000 feet. So the higher it is, the higher you are, the actually the more difficult it is because you know, the atmosphere is less dense. Your thrust available on your aircraft is a little bit less. So, you know, you, you generally like the mid twenties, like 20 to 22,000 feet is where you're uh, typically refueling. And I want to say, uh, it's been a bit, but I want to say we're right around 300 to 350 knots is the realm, uh, uh, which would be roughly 350 to 400 miles an hour is when, when we're tanking. 
And so once you start taking gas, you know, there's a couple things that happen. You have to maintain your position in relation to the aircraft. The boom operator could kind of help out a little bit, but like with anything else, you're at a, a certain power setting predicated on the weight. Now in an aircraft, as you get heavier, it requires more power, more speed to stay airborne. So now imagine you're readjusting your weight in a very rapid motion. Uh, or a very short period of time. Typically in an F-16, you're taking about, you know, with a, uh, about anywhere from eight to 10,000, anywhere from, I'd say, sorry, six to 10,000 pounds of gas, you know, depending on where you're at and what your states are. So you have, you know, so your weight is rapidly shifting from, you know, uh, it's increasing from anywhere from six to 10,000 pounds in a very short period of time. Do you take off full every time? You do. So how many, what's the most times you've had to tanker up on a mission uh, does it ever happen where you have to go back more than once on a mission oh absolutely without landing i think my i'm trying to remember i think it was about 12 or 13 times on one mission what the fr- how long were you in the air for uh just under 12 hours so you're burning six to ten thousand pounds of gas 12 times mm-hmm. which correlates into how many gallons if you know uh, roughly i think uh uh, have gas is roughly like six pounds per gallon. So it's roughly 2000 gallons of gas, or I'd say, you know, 1500 to 2000 pounds of gallon of gas gallons mm-hmm. in the jet at one time. Mm-hmm. And how many miles do you get to a gallon in an F 16? Couldn't tell you that one. I have no idea. Can't be that many, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never, never sat down and really equated. So you're saying it. that you have burned up to 12,000 gallons of gas on one mission yeah. of jet fuel. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That seems like a lot. Well, it depends on how, how long you're airborne, you know, and once again, it's, you know, the fighter aircraft are not like, it's kind of like a car, you know, do you really worry about miles per gallon in a Ferrari? You shouldn't. No, (laughs) but but I'm talking, I'm talking about a being in the air that long is what's blowing my mind that you are, is there, is there stress on tankering up? Or is it an easy, is it like one of those things you do with your eyes closed? No. Well, like anything else, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it, the easier it is. The first time I, I remember in training, I absolutely hated tanking because it's, it's uncomfortable. You're really close, you know, and it was, it was very, I would find myself tensing up. Like as soon as I felt, you know, as soon as the jet would shudder a little bit when the probe was plugged into the receptacle, I would, I, I would sit there and I had an instructor pointed out, like I would just flex my traps. I'm sitting up there just completely flexed and. And he's like, dude, you got to relax. Yeah. So I started when I first started tanking, I had to sing to myself as I'm in contact, you know, as in the position, just to kind of remind myself to relax and and, and things of that nature. And obviously those are the first few times you do it now in combat, you know, on average, you're probably, I'd say on average, I'd tank about four or five times per mission, you know, because you're only going, you you do about 45 to 50 minutes per tanking. Uh, And the reason being is they it gives you more options. The more gas that you have in the airplane, it gives you more options. So they don't, you don't run the plane all the way to, to empty before you get new gas. Like you do with your car, you'll basically run it to about a third to a half of a tank before you get your gas, uh, to, before you refuel. And what'd you say? It was a basket or a what? It, it was a probe. A, a, so the probe is or a boom. The, the boom is the air force. Yeah. What's the first thing the fighter pilot does is there, is there communication or jargon that you can tell me what's being said between you and the tanker pilot? And when you, when you hear like, okay, we're off or we're released, can you feel it? Yeah. Shake the plane when it comes off? What, yeah. what it, is there something said that makes sure that you, the security's there of like, Hey, we're released, go ahead. Yeah. They'll, they'll give you a contact call and they'll give you a disconnect call. And then once you're done, you, you kind of slowly fall, uh, fall aft away from the aircraft and then you explain move. that. 
You fall what? You fall aft. You basically you, you bring your power back and you just kind of tr- start trailing the plane. And and typically how they, depending on how many aircraft are on the uh, on the tanker, you start on the left side and get gas. You know, go from the left side to the boom underneath the aircraft and then go back out the right side. Um, or if you have multiple aircraft, like let's say we've we've done tanking with six planes per tanker, you know, you you um, will stay on your side of the aircraft. So you'll go down, get your gas, and then go back out to your wing, and then everybody moves closer to the plane like it goes down kind of uh uh moves from the uh most uh outboard wing and then they go to the the middle position then they go to the inboard position then they go to the uh to the boom you know and it's happening on both sides so you have six planes stacked within 45 feet of this tanker yeah wow that's got to be nerve-wracking it i mean that part is not not really that big of a deal because you're used to you i mean you train so much um flying close to close proximity to one another so the you know the they call it the uh, fingertip position uh in the air force which uh the navy calls it parade but it's largely the same thing you're about three feet wing wingtip to wingtip so is blue angels always in parades well that's the the name of the yeah they're in the, those type they have i can't even explain all the uh different formations but they have but the, you know they're sure sure uh no, sorry their show formations are you know they're impressive you say they're impressive. You're a fighter pilot. They're fighter pilots. Mm-hmm. Are they trained different to be able to do these maneuvers, the stuff that the normal fighter pilots like yourself, I don't like to use the word normal, but just somebody that's not in the Blue Angels, are they trained on a different level of aerobatics that you guys were not? Uh, well, absolutely, because they, you know, they go out, they rehearse their show. So, you know, where they cease to really study combat operations, you know, because their, their skill set at that particular moment in time is you know, air shows and, you know, flying super close to one another in, you know, all these, uh, various aerobatic, um, formations and stuff like that, you know, it, like anything else, I, I don't think, uh, their skill set is outside most fighter pilots, but it, at the end of the day, it's very specialized and it's very unique. So what's impressive about it? You like, use, use the word impressive. What impresses you as a fighter pilot about what the, the Blue Angels do? I mean, just the precision where they're over there. You know, I mean, these guys are, you're watching them do it. And obviously, you know, because you understand some of that close flying is very perishable. Um, so the fact that what impresses you that, you know, the fact that these guys are are, are doing it so often um, and so precise that it, it just, it looks routine. So that what, what kind of jets are used for the Blue Angels? Uh, F-18s. And are they faster than a 16? Uh, they're different. They're so different. it's, it's a different, uh, it's just a different aircraft built for, you know, two different things. The F-18 is, you know, it's, it's a, it's similar in its capabilities in F-16. Uh, it does have the added bonus of being able to land on an aircraft carrier, which an F-16 can't do. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're, they're different. You're, you can't really compare apples to apples on that one. I don't know if I'm ready to make the transition into what you do commercially but just with the last five minutes of our conversation, it's, and I, I think, I don't know if I talked to you about this or if it was Rach, but it's got to be boring as shit being in an F-37 or a, in a 737. Um, I know there's a lot of responsibility. Don't get, I never want to take that away from what you do as a commercial pilot or what any other commercial pilot does with the safety in the sky. But I've heard it thrown around like it's like, you know, just driving a dump truck after you've been up in a 16 and doing these maneuvers you're talking about. For sure, it's got to be, is it boring? It's different. So <laughs> that, that's the way I would say, you know, you always have to find um, a way to keep your mind active and, and things of that nature. So there's always, there's no, 
you know, you know, complacency kills, you know, has always been one of my mantras. So I'm constantly doing stuff in the plane to keep my mind active. And, and there's a lot of other um, things that you don't experience in a fighter that you do in a commercial aircraft. You know, obviously now you have to actually deal with people, you know, <laughs> which is, can be challenging, you know, especially, uh, you know, in, in today's, uh, today's society, you know, there's a, you know, it's not like the back in the heyday of aviation where everyone got dressed up in their Sunday's best and everyone was wearing suits and this, that, and the other, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's just a different mentality. You're dealing with different, um, personalities and, and people and, and not just, not just with the passengers, but also with the crew. So that part of it, I, I find challenging, you know, to where, you know, when you're in a single seat fighter, the only person you're dealing with is you in the plane. And then you might have some element mates and other aircraft, but you know, you're, it's your own universe. So having to, you know, coordinate and, you know, communicate what you want to do. It's, it's something that's not inherently, um, uh, not inherent to a fighter guy, you know, because a fighter guy is like, well, I want to do this. I just do it. You know, now it's like, Oh, I got to tell somebody else what I'm doing and, you know, coordinate and this, that, and the other. So, so did I miss anything with what you just said about being a fighter pilot and being able to do your thing? And now you got to coordinate it and talk to other mm -hmm. people. Are we ready for that transition of, of, cause I got a lot of questions. I'm not just questions, but comments and, and, and inquiries about air travel of what we're used to is just the public. Sure. As just a citizen of the, you know, gets, gets on one of these planes. It, knowing what you know about your career, Bri, what you've done, what you've accomplished, what you've, what you've experienced, have we touched on most of it as a whole? Did I miss anything? I know that I have. I'm just saying, is there something that needs to be talked about that you, that, 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 that I wouldn't know to talk about? I've just been trying to go through your career, but I very easily could have swayed off. I don't want to make the transition into the Brian, the Brian Moore that flies 130 people from San Diego to Dallas before we get done with the Brian that was used to going off on his own and completing these missions because there was a lot of missions that we didn't talk about. You said we talked about the medal that you for the schoolyard and and what you did there with the 200 hostages, but there was 130 other missions. Did, did I miss something? Is there something that stands out? I know you're not a bragger. I know you're not a raw, raw type of guy, but did I miss something that needs to be touched on? No, I mean, you know, all those, you know, that was probably, you know, of all of my tours, that was obviously probably the most memorable, you know, there was other, other instances when, when you employ in combat, you know, some of them are routine, some of them are, um, are not as exceptional. I think that one had, had the, you know, the most, uh, tangible results, you know, um, of all the, all the missions I was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to do. So I didn't, I didn't miss anything. That, I, I don't think so. Do you think that my, the way that we wove in and out of this story was the right way to do it? Is it, is it okay to talk about this stuff? Is it okay to know that this stuff is going on? Or did I touch on something that made you be like, uh, cause you never really faltered from any of the, any of my comments or anything. And I just, when you talk to military, you always have it in the back of your mind. Like, am I pushing it too far emotionally? Am I pushing it too far professionally? Am I trying to get something out of them to make this more interesting to the listening audience that they might not be very comfortable or suitable talking about? Did any of that take place at all? Um, uh, not necessarily for me. I mean, if there was something I can't talk about, I wouldn't talk about it. So there was nothing that really came up. 
I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it was, I, I think it was more of the organic, you know, uh, conversation, if you will. So, I mean, it obviously, if we had this conversation again, we'd probably go down a couple other bunny holes, uh, or rabbit holes, if you will. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really don't have much. What, besides your metal, what is the most, what would you, what would you want to be remembered as? not saying that you're dying. I'm not saying any of that. I, I know that that's being, you know, veterans that, that, that perish in war and in, in combat is a, is a totally different subject that we've, we've touched on a little bit when we talked about Holbrook farms and all of that a little bit last week. But is there something that you would write down of wanting to be remembered as, as a fighter pilot and then as a fighter pilot instructor, Do, has any of that ever crossed your mind? And you're young, you're 40 years old. You, you were like in the prime of your life and you've already accomplished so much in a very high pressure job, very highly educated. Is there something that comes to mind that you would want to be remembered as, as part of the U S military? That's a great question. Um, honestly, haven't really given that much thought yet. You know, I, I, I don't know if I've, uh, kind of already alluded to it or, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I haven't really sat and looked back yet, you know? So it's because you refuse to stop. Well, you know, I think a little bit of that, you know, I'm, I'm just always looking for the, you know, what's next, you know, it's a, it's kind of the old uh, saying you're either growing or you're dying. There's no other direction to go. So uh, that's what I'm always trying to do. And, you know, at, at one point when I'm, when I'm at a, a commensurate level where I'm like, Hey, I've, I've, I feel like I've accomplished everything I wanted to do. Now it's time to be a little bit more retrospective, uh, on it. And I, I, uh, quite frankly, I just haven't given that any thought up to this point. How old are your kids right now? Uh, 16, five and seven. Your 16 year old comes to you tomorrow and says, I want to follow in your footsteps. Okay. You're hundred percent supportive of this lifestyle, of this pressure, of this, this, this path that he's, he or she's getting ready. Is your 16 year old? I don't, I've never met your 16 year old yeah, daughter. If she wants to be Rachel, she wants to grow up and be a female fighter pilot. You're 100% on board with it. It's almost like, you know, a UFC stud, come, his kid comes to him and goes, I don't know if you want to get hit this many times in the head or something. Is there anything that you tell them that would might maybe sway their decision to not go down that route? You know, um, no. Uh, honestly, uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, here's, you know, I would try to figure out, okay, or, or ask questions like, okay, why do you want to do this? You know, and the big thing is just seeing if they're dedicated to doing it. Cause you know, when you go to these, to these extremes, it's gotta be a hundred percent pure dedication to it. So it's not something you just kind of, you know, throw your name in the hat and hope for the best. Like you, like, what are you willing to do to make this happen? You know, type thing as far as how, how, how hard are you willing to work? How hard? And that would be the one thing I just want to impress is like, this has to be your number one priority. And if you have that commitment from one of your kids, uh, it doesn't matter what they want to do. You know, my seven year old says she wants to be a farmer. Awesome. Go farm, you know, and the, you know, and I'm, we'll, we'll make that happen or, you know, or it, 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 anytime your child is motivated and wants to go do something, you know, um, and is willing to completely sell out and do whatever it takes to, to reach that goal, you can't help but to be proud of that and can't help but to facilitate, uh, facilitate that. So if my 16 year old says, Hey, I want to, you know, she's, she's like, I want to go, I want to be Rachel, you know, obviously we'll be relating our experience. Well, this is what we found. You know, this is how, how we accomplished it. You know, there's a, there's a thousands of ways to skin a cat, if you will. You know, this is what brought us success, but you could follow this path or what's going on now. You know, obviously our information is, is slightly old. 
Um, but I would absolutely have no reservations. And, and it's not because it, are you going to have a little apprehensive because, you know, we've buried friends. Um, absolutely. But at the end of the day, um, I think it's a noble, it's a noble goal. With the recruiting process that takes place in the military, not just for fighter pilots, but for every job that there is, you see the commercials, you see the billboards. There's a recruiting process that, that we need fighter pilots. We have to have fighter pilots with today's society, with the upbringing of today's kids, with technology, with the inability, almost, I don't say this a hundred percent, as you say, with a broad brushstroke, but I've seen a lot of, 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 there's not a lot of conversing. There's not a lot of old school type of communications going on. Kids are getting their content in different ways. The video games, everything is like this full blown, just like what you said, sensory overload. Is our military in trouble with the way kids are being raised today? And I'm not saying that every parents, that parenting's bad. I'm just saying that with text messaging and instant messaging and the ability to write LOL instead of, hey, I'm laughing my ass off and really write it out and spell it. Are we breeding a dumber kid? And is our military in trouble if we don't have somebody with your expertise, your intelligence, your background in education? Are we in trouble, in your opinion, in the future of our military with the way kids are being brought up these days? Well, no, I don't think so. And in the case in point, we've been running combat operations since 2002. So if you look at it this way, there's kids that are coming up now or in the military that were born in 2001, 2002, that, that are a part of this generation that you speak of. And they're coming in the military and they're running combat ops, flawless combat ops for that, like that, that we have been running. So, you know, you know, the, I think, you know, the torch is being, you know, like we talk about the digital age, well, like it or not, everyone, we're all going to the digital age. I mean, I watch you type on your phone, you type faster on your, you text messages faster than I do. But at the end of the day, that's how we communicate now. And that communication, whether it's breakdown, it's, it's faster, it's more efficient, and it gets a lot done. You know, we're, we kind of, I don't want to say we go away from the sit down and have, you know, have a beer and talk about nothing, you know, that those are, those are part of the things that, you know, build, built society relationships and things of that nature. I think those are still being done. They're just being done different, you know, than, than the way that you and I grew up with. Um, so I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Um, uh, but at the end, at the end of the day, I acknowledge the fact that, well, it's, it's different than the way I choose to do things. Um, so, I mean, I mean, bottom line is I don't think, you know, that that's, that's happening, you know, cause obviously, you know, the, the core of the, you know, it, it all depends on what, you know, I don't want to do, you know, make ge gross generalizations, you know, and, and you get a lot of that stuff in the media nowadays. Oh, Hey, these kids were in trouble. These kids can't do this. These kids can't do this. They can't do this. They can't do that. They, they don't have any social skills. I'm like, well, obviously I'm not, I'm not seeing that in the military, you know, cause it, the military, supersedes anything that they've accomplished. Maybe they were like that in their, at, at home. Um, I, I can't speak intelligently about that, but what I can say is they made a commitment to, to incorporate and bring what skills they have to the better, to the betterment of the U S military, our government, our constitution, and they're bringing those skills forward to do just that. Um, so I, I honestly, I, I don't think the military is in trouble. You know, as long as we have uh, people, because once again, we're all volunteer. We still have people every day volunteering to do it. We to do the job, and they're going to be doing it differently. The way we fight, you know, uh, use aircraft and employ them in combat, completely different than the previous generations. 
you know, change is, in, is inevitable. And e either you, you embrace the change or if you, if you, you know, refuse to, uh, to accept the changes and, and, and accept the efficiency of what this new process involves, then, you know, you might, you f could find yourself being on the, the wrong end of a, uh, of a battle. You know, you could find yourself losing because this other, this other, uh, country does it better. They do it more efficient, you know? So you, you, you inevitably have to change because the technology is always changing. Well, so there's not one worry. That's, it's, that's interesting because you hear a lot, you know, with guys our age of saying, man, I wonder if this next generation can, is even going to be able to sit and have a conversation. And maybe you don't have to, to, like you say, learn the systems. Yeah. And you have, they're flying, they're, they're performing what, what you said, flawless combat missions. So maybe being so inapt with technology is a good thing for the future of our military of being able to be a good systems reader. It, it's just different. Depends on your job. You know, uh, I mean, it depends on your, on your job, you know, uh, and every, every job is going to have a specialized skill set. You know, obviously if you're, um, an attache to a, um, you know, to an embassy and you don't have any verbal skills you're probably going to be very terrible at that job, you know? So either you learn the skills or you have them just inherent to you. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go with it. So I think, you know, honestly, this, the generation that we have currently coming up in, is unlike any in the world or that, that we've seen up to this point. You know, you look at the 80s, we had small little conflicts, but n no wars. 90s, we had, you know, the, you know, the Gulf War One that happened that was over in like 28 days. You know, we have not run sustained combat operations for this length of time. This is even more than exceeded Vietnam, Korea, all those times, you know. So we're, we're running, we're now, you know, we now have, you know, which we've never had or a very, it, we, it hasn't happened as much in the past, but we have sons deploying with dads into combat, you know, family members or, um, that are now leaving to go fight the same war that their, their parents had fought, which doesn't necessarily happen. It hasn't necessarily happened, um, in our past as much as it is to this day because of the, the, the long, uh, sustaining combat operations. It's interesting. Very so do you, do you see anything in your teachings now and in your instructing now that is a sign of what I alluded to? Is there, are there, are there any instances of it to where you're like, well, oh, well, that's different. What, so what differences do you see? At the end of the day, you know, whether or not that I, um, whether or not that I, because uh, the nice thing about is about the military and about a lot of things, you know, especially like competition, you know, sports and all those things. At the end of the day, no one, it all, it all matters about the W. You got to get the win. However you achieve that win is inconsequential. Wait a minute. I thought it was about participating. Never said that. I'm just, I just thought that in today's society that, it, that, you're, that winning doesn't matter. No, I mean, once again, and once again, we're getting into a philosophical conversation. I'm trying to relate the way that kids are brought up today with the way that it, it, back when we grew up, it was, we got to get the win. Now you get a trophy for participating in a lot of different things. I just am wondering if that mentality is transitioning into the military to where it's not, it's that you're, that you're experiencing or facing individuals that really don't know what it means to win or to have that championship mentality. Well, once again, it's a, you know, it's a statement you say, you know, kids are being raised. Well, my kids aren't being raised that way. 
So I can't speak intelligently on, on how other kids are being raised because, quite frankly, that's not my responsibility. I can tell how my parent, my kids are being raised. And that's, you know, uh, and we could even go back further than that, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, in, in basic um, training, you know, the instructors were allowed to hit you. You know, so then they got rid of that. And there was a huge upheaval in the military. Oh, we're, we're breeding sissies. These guys, you know, are not going to know how to handle when somebody hits them and this, that, and the other. Well, cool. So there was, a, you know, it was kind of like the old way of doing things. It doesn't, hasn't stemmed our effectiveness in combat operations, you know? So, Good point. you know, a lot of this is going to the fact is like, you know, yeah, it's a flux. And, you know, as the generation, you know, it, the one thing that is constant is the older generation always craps on the younger generation. They, they were never as tough as we were. They're never as this and that and the other proof is in the pudding, you know? So going back to what you were, you were saying earlier, like, you know, I'm briefing how I think this uh, combat, how this flight should be run or what they need to do. At the end of the day, they might be thinking about something I haven't thought about. At the end of the day, if they get their butts kicked, it validates what I was telling. But if they kick my butt, then I'm like, huh, now I need to go back to the drawing board and see what they're, what they're looking at and, and how they're able to get this. And, and it's an ebb and flow. You know, I'm always learning from them. They're learning from me, but it, it always, you, you know, it never stops. You never stop learning. You never stop striving. You never uh, stop trying to get better to get the win. It's an interesting way to put it. It just seems to me, again, I have to play the devil's advocate in some instances. I yeah. don't want you to like think that I'm trying to tell you what's going on in the military. I'm simply saying that it's almost inevitable that you're going to face that in your instructing or at, that they were brought up with that mentality that's not really, or is everybody that takes that step of saying, hey, I'm going to be a fighter pilot, that's safe to say that they are that championship mentality because there's no way that they would ever even get to the point of sitting in your plane, with, in your jet with you or in the classroom with you if they didn't have it. Sure. And, and it's always easier to just draw a line in the sand and as opposed to actually having to, to, you know, figure out what makes people tick. It's a lot easier to generalize it than as opposed to actually investigate. So, um, yeah. And, and are there some outliers? Yeah. Are there some, some folks that can't hack it or, 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 or folks that just don't want to, um, you know, assimilate and, uh, you know, uh, figure or uh, figure out how they can, how they can work within the constraints of the military structure. Absolutely. There is. Is that, uh, you know, but that is not the, that is not the majority and that is not, not the norm as I've seen it. So we didn't, we didn't skip a lot in your opinion. We touched on a lot of things. You said if we did have this conversation again, we would go down a couple other rabbit holes. Um, you're happy with where you're at with your military career. You achieved a lot. You're an instructor in the reserves now. And this is this considered a full-time gig or... It's Part-time. It's part-time. Yeah. It, chosen? Uh, yeah. Why? Just flexibility. You know, it, it, it gets to the point where, you know, um, when we went to the reserves, you know, uh, we, we decided we had the opportunity to go full-time or part-time for the job that these, uh, that I was being offered. It was a part-time position. Part-time position. And then that leads you into taking a part-time job as a commercial pilot. And that's more of the full-time. I mean, they're, the funny thing is they, uh, I should say they're probably both full-time jobs because typically with the airlines, I fly about 12 to 14 days a month. And then with the military, I give them 10 to 12 days a month. Oh, so you're working 28 days. That's mm. a full-time job. Yeah. From both guys, you know, so it's a, uh, it it's is more, what it is. 
a little <laughs> bit more than a full-time job. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know if we really want to break into it. You tell, I don't want to get into an hour and a half more of what I want to talk about commercially. I just didn't want to leave the military part of, of it, are you after your, after your last job was given to you that you're currently in, in the, in the reserves role, mm-hmm. it's, you've made the statement that, Hey, you know, you're working for that 20 years mm-hmm. right now. It's another job. It's another, it's a, it's just another assignment that you're involved in right now. How many more years do you have left to get 20? Um, at the, cause I, I did when you transfer services. Um, so I, I was commissioned as an officer in 2003, which means I could have retired if I stayed air force 2023. Um, but because of the the transfer from the Air Force to the Navy, I, I incurred what they call a break in service. So it actually means now um, the Navy considers me uh, an 04 commission class, which means I can't uh, retire till 2024. So Five I bought more. about a year. Five more years left. That's at the beginning of 2024. Yeah, so I'd say like you know, really four years and two months. And will you be out, you think? It depends. It depends. It depends. That's to be that's to be seen. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll cross that bridge once... Uh, you know, once we get to it. So you're, you instruct these jobs, you instruct these pilots that are getting ready to take their next step in their fighter, their combat fighters, right? That's mm-hmm. what they're training to do under you right now. Yeah. And you also fly people like me around in a 737. That's where I want to pick up the next time we meet, which I hope it's sooner than later right. and finish this with part four of the Brian Moore saga. But I really do want to get into some of the things that people think about when they sit down into that chair on that Airbus or that 737, that that Boeing that you fly, right? You fly a Boeing 737? Yep. Uh, and, and I want to get into the mentality behind that. What's going on in the cockpit, the communication, the jargon with the air traffic control, with the towers, with the agencies around the country, what you're looking for. Um, Rachel gave us a really good thorough rundown through it, but you might see it different. You're flying a different jet. You're flying different routes. Um, you're flying for a different airline. You fly for American. Yeah. She flies for United. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just want to get into questions that I, you know, like I get on a, I get on a plane this Thursday to fly from here to Salt Lake city. And then I fly from Salt Lake city to Baltimore. So that's, you know, it's going across the country pretty much to the Eastern. And I want to get into, you know, what, what's going on in you guys are up there controlling the entire flight. You have the flight attendants in the back. My biggest jubilation of being a passenger is when I get on a plane and I see a pilot in uniform that's just, and I told Rachel that that's like hopping on to get to his next airport for a flight. And I'm like, Oh God, this guy's going to hate me by the end of this flight. Cause I'm just going <laughs> to ask him, but I want to ask you those questions that I would, if I was sitting next to a pilot, because what, 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 what just caused that turbulence? What, mm-hmm. what are you looking for in this guy? What, what, what is causing this, this to go down? Or why are we flying at this altitude today when I flew to Salt Lake City last week and we were at 32,000 feet, but we're at 35,000 feet today? What's, what, what is transitioning? Because I think that, that communication is everything. I think clarity and, and like what you say, investigation and finding out instead of just passing the buck or assuming something, like I would say, well, I assume that the military doesn't have as, as strong of chance in the next five years because the way kids are brought up, it's better of what you said to investigate that and figure out, okay, well then why are we flying flawless combat missions right now? So to be a passenger that's afraid to fly, I bring up Andy Perwin all the time, who's a mutual friend. He didn't fly until he was in his forties. Sure. Why? 
Why was he scared for so many years? And what kind of clarification and, and transparency can we bring to air travel? It is the safest form of travel. Why is it the safest form of travel? There's thousands and thousands of planes in the air over American air, air ter, uh, what is it called? Air, airspace. airspace at any given time of any day or night. Why is it so much, you know, I want to get into all that because I think it's important for people to have an understanding that we don't have any control once we're on that plane. It's in your control. It's in you and your, your co-pilot's control and all of your years of, of education and, 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 and assignments and combat missions and all of your, your military experience is playing a role in our safety now. So I just kind of want to get into that and, and what you're doing as a pilot. Are you playing Jenga while you're up there with the guy with, with, with the blocks? Are you on a crossword puzzle? Or is it on autopilot all the time? Are you com uh, constantly communicating and making sure that we are flying in friendly skies as far as weather goes and anything? So is that is that a good point to pick up next time and really get into to commercial travel? Yeah, sounds good. Is that cool? Yeah. You feel, you feel good about answering questions in air travel? I'm not going to put answer, you to sleep. I'll answer what I can, man. <laughs> Brian Moore, you were the man. That was part three of the Brian Moore saga. He, uh, like we talked about, we, we don't need to get back into the air metal. But listen to part two of this podcast if you did not hear his story and, and the medal that he received that we went over in in uh, great detail. It's an amazing story, an amazing feat. And uh, I'm proud to have him in the This Life Ain't For Everybody studio. I'm Chad Belding. For Brian Moore, we will be back with part four soon enough. Check out new episodes of our TV show, The Foul Life, airing right now on the Outdoor Channel, as well as new episodes of The Foul Life podcast that are available through all of your podcasting platforms. And it's all ducks, all geese, all waterfowl all the time. And we got a lot of great guests coming up on that. For our new merchandise, check out thefowllife.com. And you can find us on all of your social media platforms, especially Instagram and Facebook at TV. Tom Rashashin, do me a big favor. Hit that button. Leith Lofton, what you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you all very much. Life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone?